back to another episode of Energy Voices on CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the co-founder of an organization called Student Energy and the host of Energy Voices. On this month's show, we're going to cover a number of really interesting and fascinating topics in the world of energy. We're going to kick things off with an interview with Eden Full, the founder of Sun Saluter and a Teal Fellow, who's one of the most driven and passionate young women in the world of energy and technology. We're also going to have an interview on the concept of carbon budgets with a, a senior policy advisor from Nexin, a very interesting juxtaposition of someone currently working in the oil industry focused on how we deal with carbon and climate change. We're also going to have an interview with Josephine Coombe, Vice President of Bullfrog Power, on the impact that consumer choice can have in transitioning towards a more sustainable energy system. We're going to finish the show with an essay on green finance by student energy co-founder Janice Tran, who currently works at JP Morgan on the investment side of the solar and renewables industry. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Eden Full to the show, who is simultaneously studying at Princeton, as well as running one of the most innovative young startups in the world of solar called Sun Saluter. So welcome to the show, Eden. Thanks so much for having me here. So first off, uh, tell us about yourself. Who, who are you? Uh, how did you start this business? And, and give us a little bit of the story of Eden, because it's quite a fascinating story. So I'm actually originally from Calgary. And, uh, you know, I'd been really interested in the field of solar energy since I was really young. Um, I started tinkering with solar panels when I was 9 or 10. Uh, I'm 22 right now. Um, And I remember building a desktop solar car um, and just, you know, hooking it up to a motor and and having a little solar panel and being really fascinated by um, just how it seemed like magic that it would just work. And I think the more I dived into, you know, figuring out more about solar and, you know, what, you know, what was efficient about it, what wasn't efficient, what were the limitations, I realized that there is definitely a problem where um, you're not getting enough electricity. So there's a lot of conventional research that has been done on tracking systems for solar panels, which rotate them so that they'll follow the sun at every point during the day. They are a very expensive technology, though. Um, they can cost upwards of $600 per solar panel, and they're not, you know, they're not really affordable. And there's definitely been a lot of issues with um, implementing them in the past. Um, tracking algorithms are are complicated, and you know, when the systems don't work and they fail after one to three years, when you know there's a, a guarantee on the solar panel for 25 years. Um, It just doesn't make very much economic sense to be installing these tracking systems. And so when I was in high school um, here in Calgary, I started dabbling with this idea of, you know, what if I could design a better, a more low cost um, and and easily maintainable tracking system for solar panels. And uh, it started out as a science fair research project. um, But over time, I started meeting people who told me, um, you know, there's a a really strong application for what you're doing in developing a tracking system, um, you know, in the developing world, because they're starting to use more and more solar and there's more infrastructure for it. Um, You know, what if you try implementing it there? And and what was unique about your tracking system as opposed to the $600 units that we typically see? So the very first prototype of the Sun Saluter uh, used bimetallic metals um, in order to rotate the solar panel. So it would heat up you know, two types of metal, usually steel and aluminum, that were fused together. And then having these coils that were um, 
attached to a pivot point for the solar panel and at different times during the day these coils would displace and then it would cause the solar panel which was weighted on one side to rotate and you know in theory this was a great concept but um you know we don't really use bimetallic coils anymore <laughs> we haven't been doing that since the 80s when they were in your dishwasher door um and so it's uh it became apparent to me as I was deploying these systems that no one would have access to these bimetallic bi coils once uh, once I left. So what happens if they snap and break? Um, who's going to fix them? Does anyone even know what they are? Um, you know, there were a lot of issues around it. And, uh, you know, basically, I, I, I was accepted to Princeton, which is in New Jersey in the States, um, and I started studying mechanical engineering there. And uh, after my first year, I had a chance to, uh, I received a grant from Princeton to travel to Kenya and deploy one of these systems. Um, and that was when I think I really learned, you know, all about, you know, what it takes to implement a technology in the real world. You know, entirely before this, it all had, all had been just like prototypes made from materials I bought at Home Depot and then, mm -hmm. you know, like I built it in my basement and then put it in my backyard. Yeah. And... Um, you know, so this was a very different setting, and I got a lot of really great user feedback. I remember just, you know, the first week I was there, I, I spent a lot of time interviewing people who lived in the village, um, asking them what they used solar for, did they even know what solar was, did they know how it worked, um, and, you know, I got a lot of interesting um, feedback on just, you know, Things have to be really, really simple. Not everyone understands the premise of solar, uh, but they do understand the value of being able to charge their cell phones, being able to charge lanterns. Um, and, and so, you know, solar and, or electricity in general there obviously is, is, is very valuable. And if I can, you know, make something more efficient for them, if I can make their solar panel, you know, charge one extra cell phone every day, yeah, of course they'll be interested. Um, but I realized when I was deploying this first prototype over the next couple weeks after that was, yeah, I would try and introduce this idea of, you know, the bimetallic materials and like, you know, you have to maintain the solar panel. You have to make sure that it's, you know, protected from like, you know, cows and chickens and children and stuff. And like the system was not very it was not very durable. So um, I didn't factor any of those things in when I was uh, first implementing it. Mm. And um, so I think after that first project, I realized I have to make my design a lot more child-proof, cow-proof, monkey-proof. Um, I have <laughs> Thing, to... Things you probably didn't think about in your backyard in Calgary. Is exactly. What is the role of monkeys going to have <laughs> in my solar panel? Exactly. <laughs> so um, I really learned a lot from that. And, you know, they were very gracious about it. They were like, look, it's really nice that you want to help us, that you've created this design and uh, you've brought it here. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think anything's going to come of it. Um, you're going to have to bring us something simpler. Like, this is just still too complicated. I don't even know what these things are. And so I went back to the drawing board after that. And, um, you know, I, I think it, 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 I, I, I really realized that, you know, what is the most dead simple way that I can rotate a solar panel? It doesn't, that's the only thing that needs to happen, right? So it doesn't matter what way I do it. Um, and I started brainstorming different ways that I could do that. And, um, you know, I, I started remembering back to just their lifestyle and, and what they have. Maybe there's a way that I can use existing materials that they have in order to, um, 
in order to rotate the panel. And I realized, um, you know, at about five or six o'clock in the morning, a lot of these villagers will wake up um, and they'll they'll get their jerry cans and they'll go to a well or a, a river close by and they'll fill up these jerry cans with water and then bring them back to their their hut and then just leave the jerry cans, you know, sitting there on the ground until they need to, to do something with them and cook at night or something. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, oh, well, if there's going to be this water lying around anyway, maybe there's a way that, you know, we can use this water to, to power the rotation of the solar panel. Um, because then that way, water will always be there. I'll definitely know that it's a, a part of their lifestyle. And, you know, I'm not introducing something, you know, overly new uh, in, into just their daily daily habits. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, just started, I decided to start experimenting with building a solar tracker that, uh, that, that used uh, weight displacement from one side of the solar panel to the other um, in order to rotate a solar panel Mm -hmm. and so this eventually became the design for sun saluter where um, you'll mount a jerry can on the east side of the solar panel and it'll have um, a precision spigot that will that you can calibrate over a couple days to really get this flow rate and when you get a flow rate that matches you know um, about one drop every 15 seconds which matches the rate at which the sun moves across the sky you can have a jerry can that with water that's slowly dripping out and as that jerry can empties throughout the day it'll allow um, the solar panel to get lighter on the east side and I'm gonna have a bag of rocks or some sort of counterweight on the west side of the solar panel and so you know that's gonna stay constant and as the west side of the solar panel continues to get heavier and heavier throughout the day then it'll allow the solar panel to rotate and uh, follow the sun Mm -hmm. and so this is a much simpler way of doing it than you know having some tracker tracking algorithm and a stepper motor and um, it's just it makes a lot more sense for you know anyone in the developing world because anyone can understand you know a simple balancing um you know a balancing situation mm-hmm. and uh it's, it's just a lot more accessible to to have be using a local resource like water mm-hmm. and and the thing i love about it we we talk a lot on the show about the concept of legacy infrastructure and the fact that if we're going to transition to a more sustainable energy system the the easiest way to do that is to take advantage of the legacy infrastructure we have uh mm-hmm. we were talking to some of the folks from the carbon war room and they've done some calculations that there's uh, somewhat over $2 trillion of legacy infrastructure for the fossil fuel industry between refineries and pipelines and gas stations and all of the infrastructure that we have to support that energy system. And so I find it fascinating that that exact same challenge of what infrastructure do I have? I have uh, pop bottles and jerry cans that I can use to, to bring water. How do I use that to make solar more efficient? And so uh, I just want to commend you on how ingenious I think that solution ended up being. Thanks. Um, I mean, I think it's it's definitely interesting, but I think human-centered design is, is just such an important element. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned legacy infrastructure just being a, a, a problem and in, in, in no matter where you go, it's an engineering problem. And, uh, you know, it's up to up to engineers and up to, you know, makers and designers to, to figure out creative ways to, to work around that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think... Um, really looking in their environment and understanding, you know, what is the bare minimum that they understand based on their educational background and their socioeconomic background and just, you know, culture 
and it it's it's not easy to do that just by you know flying in and then just expecting that you're going to get a really good picture of what things are like in like a week like you really do have to be there day in and day out for months at a time to to understand and to be able to actually create something that's relevant mm-hmm. and so we've sort of talked about the the genesis story and the formation of sun saluter um but what have been some of the challenges that you've run into there? Uh, I spent a little bit of time in Nairobi and I found that there were, there's dozens and dozens of solar-based startups that are all working on sort of slightly different niches or slightly different mm-hmm. uh, activities there. And so what is, what are the barriers between, from Sun Saluter today and scaling so that this is a scalable solution in the developing world? How, how do you get from here to there? So Sun Saluter is a technology that um, can complement any existing solar infrastructure. Mm. And um, that means that we're not in direct competition with a lot of these other startups. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's our goal is we want to piggyback on top of the work that other people are doing and be like, hey, we know you're deploying solar panels, you know, a couple kilowatts here and there. What if we can make your panels, you know, 30 to 40 percent more efficient for the uh, for cost that is cheaper than, um, you know, buying another 30 to 40 percent of a solar panel. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the economic value of solar tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think in scaling up some of the issues that we have encountered is just there is in general not an awareness that you can rotate solar panels and they'll generate more electricity like that yeah. just isn't common knowledge, which you know, if we, if I, once I've explained it to someone, they're like, oh, duh, that makes total sense. But like, Mm -hmm. until you've done that, I think talking to some of our end users and, and engaging them um, and and getting them excited about, you know, what does 30 to 40% more electricity actually mean for me in my life? Mm -hmm. It it can be a little hard to articulate that. And so I think in terms of scale, uh, when we're trying to you know, build um, a, a larger customer base, it, 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 it can be hard just because people people don't immediately see the value. Um, 30 to 40 percent is, is I think, a little intangible until they've actually seen the comparison of mm-hmm. this is my solar panel without a tracker and this is my solar panel with sun saluter mounted on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what we do is we try to focus on um, our, our, our core customers are, are more um, like uh, other businesses, other integrators, um, nonprofits, NGOs that are implementing solar systems in the developing world. We're currently primarily focused in India, although we do have um, over 100 units that have been deployed in 12 different countries so far. Mm-hmm. But those, uh, a lot of those are, um, you know, one-off customers that have just been really excited about what we do. Piloting it. Uh, yeah, exactly. It um, but I think our core focus and where we are, um, our manufacturing headquarters and operations are based in Bangalore, India. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have some really trustworthy, really amazing partners that have we've been working with there. And what we've been focused on doing is really trying to put them in the best possible position to succeed and, and making sure that we provide them with the support that they need. Um, but we eventually do want to make this a very local operation. Mm-hmm. And I want to jump back a little bit to the conversation about uh, sort of the education aspect of mm-hmm. making people understand that facing your your solar panel to the sun makes a big difference. And and how do you how do you do that education work? And how and the second question there as well is, do people uh, 
how do people maximize efficiency as it is? Do people know that they're not getting the full power out of their solar panel? Uh, just that idea of you don't know what you don't know is, is really fascinating. And so I just wanted to get a sense of how you're overcoming that barrier on the ground. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the way that we articulate this, imp the, the impact that Sunsluter has does vary depending on our audience. You know, there's obviously uh, some people who are more quantitative who care about seeing the exact data. And we have a lot of data logged um, from just our pilots in the field in Bangalore and in a variety of other areas that we can show um, to, to be like, here is 30 to 40% more electricity, you know, on, on a really good day, you're getting up to 40% on a maybe cloudier day, you're getting 25 to 30%. And, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of covered our bases in, in that regard. You know, some people, especially our end users, they'll care more about, you know, this, how many extra cell phones can I charge? How many extra lanterns? And then to, so to really prove it to them, it's, it's more about just actually literally going there and making that comparison and setting up one solar panel with it and one solar panel without. And so, you know, that seems to be the best way to, to really sell it to people. I think mm -hmm. once they see that impact and, you know, we're continuing to find different ways of articulating what does that extra electricity mean? And it means so many different things for different people. So um it's it's definitely a work in progress still um and and i think uh we're we're, we're always realizing that you know i think there are, we need to have different ways of of, of articulating and, and having evidence of, of just the impact that we want to have mm -hmm. and you've touched a little bit on sort of where you're at as far as some of the future growth plans as far mm -hmm. as having a manufacturing facility in bangalore and, and focusing on that market right now but uh, maybe articulate for us, what is the, the three-year vision and what do you see as being the big roadblocks in, in achieving that vision? So for the remainder of 2014 and 2015, I think Sunsluter will be primarily focused on our operations in India. We just recently received a grant from the Climate Group um, to pilot uh, a new, uh, we have, we're developing a new product line um, of, of using an, uh, of a, of a Sunsluter that will be a little more automatic. So it'll have a small DC water pump that will assist with the process. Um, and I think we're going to use the climate group money um, in order to, to pilot that product line. We're going to continue to build out our Bangalore operations. Um, and we're also expanding into Northern India as well. So we, uh, on my last recent trip, I just came back from uh, Delhi last week and uh, you know I think there are a lot of partners that are very excited about working with us so we're going to focus our efforts um, for the next year year and a half maybe two years on India um, we do have a couple of other org um, organizations in other countries that are interested in setting up a very similar um, um, model in, in their country. And uh, specifically in Malawi, I think, is our next strongest lead. Mm -hmm. And so um, that will also be an interesting challenge. But I think we're going to, over the next year and a half, identify uh, partners in other countries that we want to scale to and then pick countries that are, are really strong candidates based on just what's available there and, uh, you know, if we can find trustworthy people. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll be probably, um, you know, 20, 2016, 2017, we'll be scaling into um, a few other countries. And I'd like to think that there will be some sort of exponential growth as mm -hmm. we identify what works and what doesn't work. And, so, and in between, you'll be finishing university, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I will be graduating <laughs> with a degree in mechanical engineering, hopefully, uh, I don't want to jinx anything, yeah. um, in June of 2015. Perfect. Uh, well, that's all the questions that we had for you today. I think this was fascinating for our listeners just to hear somebody 
who is walking the walk and is is working on an innovative solution, but on the deployment of that solution that mm -hmm. I think sometimes people get caught up in the theoretical conversations about what is the potential or, or where was the research. And, and I think it's a really powerful case study to our, our members and our listeners that just diving in and getting your hands dirty and playing mm -hmm. around in your backyard and then realizing you need to worry about monkeys and cows and children <laughs> is really valuable. So we, we wish you the best of luck and we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Voices. I'm excited to welcome Paul Kana, the Senior Advisor for Climate Change at Nexen, which is a company owned by CNOC. So Paul, welcome to Energy Voices. Thank you for having me. So I've been looking forward to this interview uh, for quite some time, and I think it's going to be a fascinating topic for our listeners. So today we have a Senior Advisor of a major energy company discussing the, the concept of carbon budgets. And for those that are unfamiliar, we're going to first kick things off. So Paul, can you first kick us off with a sense of sort of who you are, how you got involved in Nexen, and what is a carbon budget? I want you to sort of lead us off with those three things. Sure. Um, I've been with Nexen now for just over a couple of years. Um, before that, I actually worked uh, with the Government of Canada in Ottawa, and uh, I've I've had a fantastic time uh, moving from Ottawa to Calgary and, and, and in, I'm just enjoying the city. Yeah. Um, to get to your question around what a carbon budget is, mm -hmm. um, it's it's essentially like a financial budget, but instead of tracking money, it tracks carbon dioxide emissions. A carbon budget would be designed to tell us how much carbon dioxide we could em emit to reach a certain limit, and that limit is the limit of temperature rise um, from greenhouse gas emissions and, and from the greenhouse gas effect. The International Panel on Climate Change tells us um, that around a two-degree limit is the threshold that we want to avoid crossing. What's important to note, too, is it's, it's really a, uh, a conceptual budget. It's not an effect at the moment. Uh, what we need to have first is have governments around the world unite and set out a policy framework to achieve carbon dioxide em emissions um, globally. And what we're seeing now is, if, if you look at something like the International Energy's uh, reference scenario going forward, mm -hmm. Uh, global energy demand is going to be about 33% higher than today. 75% uh, of that demand is still expected to be, to be met by fossil fuels. So we can't just set a target mm -hmm. and expect the world to follow it. Uh, energy use is a major driver for carbon dioxide emissions, and that demand for energy is rising mm -hmm. in many parts of the world, especially in the Asia-Pacific region. And climate change uh, needs to curb our... And, uh, sorry, and good climate policy needs to curb our emissions um, and also enable these parts of the world to continue to grow and become wealthier and healthier. Mm -hmm. It's we, we talk about that a lot at Student Energy, that there's really two problems that we are going to need to solve by the year 2050, and it's, it's first and foremost, how do we get the quality of life to every person in the world that modern energy services brings, and in parallel to that, how do we tackle the most dire effects of climate change, that those are, they're, often talked about as being separate issues but they're they're absolutely intertwined absolutely intertwined yeah. you, you can't yeah. really do one without the other and 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 you can have energy access for everyone without necessarily tackling climate change but to to allow the 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 one and a half billion to two billion folks who don't have access to modern energy um if, if that's not done in an intelligent way it will basically be impossible to meet any sort of carbon budget or two degree scenario mm -hmm. um 
So I want to I want to start. Oh, there's no, one other part yeah. of the carbon budget too that's that's notable. Is at, at the moment it's it's more of a range. Mm -hmm. um, you know the IPCC states that they have a range of probabilities for staying over that that two degree scenario limit. Mm -hmm. So I think the uh, the budget itself is like three point seven to five point seven trillion tons of CO two. So it is. It is a budget, but at the moment, it's more of a range. I imagine as the, the science continues to improve, they'll, they'll be able to give more precision to those numbers. Yeah, right. Awesome. And to, to switch gears a little bit, so representing uh, Nexen as an oil company, what impact does a carbon budget have on your business, or what is the potential that a, that a carbon budget could have on your business? You know what, Nexen, uh, you know, we recognize the, the management of carbon dioxide emissions is an important part of our uh, of our business, yeah. an important part of our policy, the way we uh, uh, interact with government and others. And like other oil sands companies, we manage many business risk factors. And, uh, you know, for example, we have, of course, geopolitical factors when it comes to oil and natural gas, uh, geological, technical factors that can impact, impact cost and production, and market factors that can impact uh, price and demand. So climate change, climate change is an additional factor that we manage on top of that. And we conduct uh, research, we invest in new technologies, we price existing and potential carbon costs going forward into new projects, and we also aim to diversify our portfolio geographically as well as by resource. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating, that concept of um, the energy companies are in the business of managing risk, and mm -hmm. there's risk can wear a hundred different hats, exactly. but uh, I think it's important for, for, for folks to understand that in order to 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 tackle issues like climate change, that risk has to be real, and and there has to be an opportunity to respond to that risk. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, how how are companies like Nexen? So, being an oil sands company, um, how are you planning for a global scenario where we would hold ourselves accountable to a strict carbon budget? Well, we still foresee a role um, for oil and gas, even in a carbon constrained world. Um, at Nexon, of course, we aim to re reduce the emissions from the production of oil and gas. And that's through, a, as I said before, the new technologies to improve efficiency um, and uh, reduce emissions intensity. Uh, but at the same time, too, we're, uh, we're funding uh, alternative energy projects. We have a 50% stake in a, in a wind farm in Alberta. And we also participate in carbon markets in areas where we have GHG emissions, where GHG emissions are regulated. So in Alberta and BC and the United Kingdom. And if... Of course, too, in a carbon constrained world, there you know there will be a still have will still have a role for oil and gas, but of course that oil and gas would need to be used a lot a lot more efficiently in in that type of world. Mm -hmm. And I think not only oil and gas to be used efficiently, but for us as a global society to really look at the most efficient. Uh, if we have a certain carbon budget to reach, what is the most efficient way we can utilize that that carbon? Because there's there is a as a power and a flexibility that comes with fossil fuels, and I think um, one topic that often gets overlooked is the role of coal in, a, in any sort of carbon budget or carbon scenario. That um, we touched on this in a in uh, an episode, I think two episodes ago on Energy Voices, but we talked about the fact that. Uh, the entirety of the oil sands represents 0.2% of global emissions, mm -hmm. and uh, Obama's new coal regulations in the U.S. will directly reduce 3.5% of global emissions simply by regulating just coal in just the United States alone. And I think that's something that uh, for people to really grasp the, the, 
the hills that we need to die on and the battles we need to fight if we're going to reach a carbon budget and and finding the efficiency in those resources. So I, I just wanted to point that out to our listeners and see if you had any comment on that concept. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. In a carbon-constrained world, coal is most at risk, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the International Energy Agency uh, provides a scenario where the concentration of CO2 is limited to around 450 ppm, which they equate to this two degrees two degree threshold for climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this scenario, you have um, oil consumption being about 13% lower uh, in 2035 than mm-hmm. it is today. Uh, we have natural gas being around 20% higher in that scenario. But um, the, the main thing is that the, the share of coal really drops in that scenario. And um, that's a really important note here because um, coal is about twice as GHG intensive as natural gas and in, in areas like um, uh, power plants, mm-hmm. it's it's um, quite easy for for many uh, uh, companies to shift, you know, over over some years from using coal to natural gas, and we see government policies giving that direction as well. And I mean, and there's big benefits from that. You know, normally energy transitions take a lot of years, but some can move faster than others. And I've and and I think this is an example where we've seen a a growing abundance of natural gas and, and natural gas being able to f- to fill that 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 role that coal was uh, was was being used for in the United States and of course Canada as well, and it's really had big effects. You know the GHG emissions have uh, in the United States have fallen to their levels from the mid 90s, and um, this is due in large part from switching from coal to natural gas. I think you bring up a really key point there, Paul. That we are actually making some significant progress. And as a global society, we have started to figure out some of the pieces that we need to focus on in order to have it all. We we need to have a robust and healthy economy and quality of life, but we also need to protect the environment and to, to tackle climate change head on. And so I think there's been this growing sense of optimism that we've really seen that there's a really sort of optimistic feeling around the the People's Climate March in New York and the UN Climate Summit that uh, it's tipped into the mainstream and we're starting to make some of these strides. The, what was the world's largest emitter is now moving back in time and is back to emissions levels from 10, 15, 20 years ago, which is, is really fascinating. So mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to comment that I think that uh, there is a lot of progress that's been made and we need to keep pushing harder and faster. Um, to, to jump back into the conversation about carbon budgets, uh, I wanted your thoughts as somebody who who pays attention to this stuff fairly closely. How soon are we going to reach that global carbon budget? So based on our current trajectory, if we set a firm 450 parts per million target and and based on the, the global demand growth, how, mu- how long do we have left to tackle this issue? Mm-hmm. Well, Again, those, those those ideas around the carbon budget are, are still conceptual, right? And there's mm-hmm. still a, a range around what it could mean. But, uh, you know, while it's hard to give an exact date, I, I just recently read in the Scientific American that you know, the budget may be reached in about 30 years. And I think that's based on current forecasts. But, you know, really the timing on when we hit this budget or whether we exceed it at all um, are really based on choices that we'll collectively make today and over the next 30 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to switch gears with uh, a bit of a different question. So as someone who works in senior policy uh, adv- and a senior policy advisory role around climate change for an oil company, 
Uh, I think there's a lot of folks who don't necessarily think that oil companies have full-time talented staff that are paying attention to these sorts of things. And so I wanted to get sort of a, a day in the life of Paul. So what what is it that you do within Nexon? What sort of projects are you working on, uh, both in sort of the micro scale and the macro scale? What does someone who's focused on climate change policy at an oil company, what is what keeps you up at night and, and what, what are you working on? I'm actually really fortunate. I'm I've, uh, I get to work on uh, policy development and regulatory support um, with the, with governments as well as internally within my company, and I also get to work a lot on new technologies. I'm uh, I, I work uh, I'm I'm currently on the uh, uh, Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance, and I'm on and, I, and I'm a part of a steering committee there in terms of uh, looking after greenhouse gas emissions and and doing uh, directed collaborative research around that, as well as uh, working as an advisor to projects, specific projects within Nexon. And uh, I'll, I'll, I get to see how these projects work and and give uh, comments or direction here, there, where, where where appropriate. And the odd time I get to do uh, communications, things like this, and get out of my office, so I appreciate it. Well, you should do this kind of stuff a little more. <laughs> and, and before we go today, I just wanted to get any closing thoughts that you have uh, just around climate change, around carbon budgets, and and just your overall thoughts on on where this whole space is going. Well, I think you you said this already that you know there's just talking about a carbon budget isn't enough. You you have to look at that the problem and the solution in a in, in a broader context. And there's really no easy solution to meeting the world's energy demand needs and um, to reducing CO two emissions at the same time. We, we really desire CO2 reductions, but at the same time, modern civilization relies on energy and a mix of renewables, nuclear, hydro, and of course, fossil fuels to meet that demand. So, but what I do see is, you know, uh, optimism as well. Governments wanting to come in and, and, and set the pace in terms of uh, what emission reductions uh, will be and uh, allowing industry to work in, in partnership with them to, to realize the that lower carbon future. And, you know, as, and as new technology comes in and as innovation ushers, ushers in the, the next waves of energy supply, it's very likely the world will just um, switch over to new energy sources simply because they're better and it makes sense to do so. And, you know, I mean, after all, like we, we, uh, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. We found something better. And I think that's what the, uh, the future holds for us today as well. Yeah. I, I love that message. And I want to there, there's something that you, you said in there that stoked a, another question from me. You sort of talked about the, the role of governments to set some of the pace and that sort of thing. Um, but that's that's sort of a gray area for a lot of people in understanding that, uh, like, ha- and the, the question, the specific question I have is, how from a national or an international perspective do we meet targets on these sorts of things? Is it the responsibility of industry is the responsibility of industry. In your opinion, how do what is the structure necessary for us to set these targets and meet these targets, and where does the responsibility lie? Mm-hmm. Well, industry and, and other stakeholders can can advise on what the framework should be to reduce emissions, but it really is up to uh, governments around the world to um, to take something like this idea of a carbon budget, turn it into some sort of international treaty, and from that um, be able to set national goals for individual companies and underneath that we can you know as a sector in the canadian economy the oil and gas uh, companies will will respond and uh, again continue to work in partnership with with uh, government to 
to make sure we have fair and transparent and effective policies. Mm -hmm. I, I heard a really good quote from David Keith, uh, who, who spoke at a student energy event earlier this year. And his quote was that uh, it's the role of, of businesses and corporations to compete like hell in the, the game that we've set. And it's the role of society and of policy to set the rules for that game. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really interesting way to frame the fact that uh, no one is going to voluntarily lose money because they feel like it. And it's, it's the role that if we as a society want there to be more, um, if we want to hit a carbon budget or we want to pursue more renewable sources or we want to take action in some way on our energy system, we need to change the rules of that game to enable that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I thought that... that it's been really interesting and fascinating to hear your perspective as mm -hmm. someone who's working inside an energy company to really make these sorts of concepts known yeah. um, and also the role of, of where those different players act in the space because it's very complex. You make a very good point there about how it's not just uh, government but also the role of individuals and how um, better energy literacy and, and you know, better uh, stakeholder inter intervention will lead to good policy. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming in. It's something that uh, it's fascinating to hear both in your role and, and the firm you work with and, and reassuring to know that these are conversations that are happening at a very high level across the energy industry. So I just wanted to extend a big thank you from our, our audience and myself for, for joining us on the show. And I hope we can have you back for a future show. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Take care, Paul. Thanks. Energy Voices, we've got Josephine Coombe, Vice President from Bullfrog Power, a very advanced and innovative energy company in Canada that is working to rally students and university students around creating a more sustainable energy system. So welcome to the show, Josephine. Thank you, Sean. Great to be here. So we always like to kick off with a bit of background on, on, on who are you? So what, uh, how did you get involved in Bullfrog Power and, and what is your background in, as far as working in this industry? Sure. Well, I've actually been with uh, Bullfrog Power since the very beginning, um, which is about nine and a half years ago, back in 2005 when we launched the company. And um, my, my role has, uh, I've moved around the company, but um, currently my role is to head up our uh, consumer uh, sales and, and marketing activities. Um, and, you know, back when we, when we first started, and there was, you know, there was only a handful of us in the in the first uh, early days, uh, we really had a vision of providing Canadians with choice in in an area where we really haven't had choice before, which is in our energy purchasing. And so we um, we initially launched uh, in Ontario with a an offering for uh, residential uh, customers to be able to green the electricity um, in their homes. Since that time, you know, we've expanded across the country. We're now available nationwide to homes and businesses all across Canada. And I think that really speaks to the environmental consciousness of Canadians. Um, certainly, you know, our conversations with customers, our market research and, and, uh, and so forth all indicate that, that Canadians are really um, invested in and engaged in our energy conversation in this country. Um, they care about our natural heritage, our environment, and they 
are you know many ready and willing to 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 do something about it um and so we basically gave them the ability to vote with their wallet in favor of clean renewable energy mm-hmm. and and walk me through the the specifics and, and the technical aspects of uh you, you mentioned that you've had customer growth all across the country but what does it mean for someone to become a customer of bullfrog power what happens when somebody signs up for bullfrog power Sure. Well, one of the, the great things about it is that it's super easy. Um, on the on the home front, essentially, when a customer um, bullfrog powers their home, we ensure that green electricity from uh, low-impact sources, including uh, low-impact hydro and wind power, are injected onto the Canadian electricity system on their behalf to match the amount that they're purchasing from them from us. So nothing actually changes at the, the level of the home or the the, the office for, for business customers. Essentially we're injecting green power to match their purchase so they don't need any special um, equipment or wiring. Mm-hmm. Now in the in the case of our new um, student uh, product, um, the green electricity is uh, estimated on the basis of the typical usage of an average student over the post-secondary um, school year of, of uh, eight months um, for uh, our main product. And essentially what happens there, again, is that we put green electricity onto the grid um, to match the, the average usage of a student. Mm-hmm. Um, We've also uh, recently uh, introduced at uh, a number of events um, additional products where students can purchase for a single term or even for for two years, and that'll be uh, uh, available online as well. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's been through and been in this ecosystem for for going on a decade now, uh, what have been the, the, the ups and the downs that you've seen? You said the company's been around for nine and a half years, so it takes us mm-hmm. back to sort of 2004, 2005, when mm-hmm. there's just been a whole ream of things that have happened in the world of energy uh, in, in the meantime. So, so what have been the ebbs and flows both in the business for Bullfrog Power and just from your perspective, where do you see us being uh, looking forward in the industry right now? That's a it's actually a really interesting question, Sean, because it's certainly been it's certainly been a very um, eventful um, decade in terms of the energy landscape in Canada, in terms of the evolution of environmental uh, consciousness uh, in in Canada, and certainly you know we we saw quite a quite a big change in you know back in the early years with uh, you know the advent of um, you know Al Gore's um, activities and so forth, and 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 that that certainly brought um, climate change and energy issues onto you know the front the front page, so to speak. Um, you know, with with the downturn, you know, people uh, you know can become more um, cost sensitive and so forth, and uh, and sometimes you know the environment can um, you know can go off the radar and and so on. But but what's been you know, fantastic to see is that, you know, when it comes to renewable energy, Canadians are, um, they're really behind it. Um, they they recognize that we don't have to choose between the environment and the economy, that uh, growing our renewable energy industry is great for the economy. Uh, it's great for our future as a, as a country with a, a country that has a, you know, a history, a legacy, um, and obviously, you know, deep experience in in natural resources um and and canadians are really they're they're behind this so 
So we've, um, you know, we've seen certainly uh, increased awareness, increased understanding of the issues, and um, increasing uh, commitment and enthusiasm um, from Canadians to, um, you know, to get behind uh, the renewable energy movement. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's in an, in a similar industry, it's there's I feel like there's actually a real sense of optimism right now, where uh, people we're starting to see the that little by little and inch by inch there is movement on increased adoption of renewables, increased energy efficiency, increased understanding of the impacts of climate change. And so uh, I just wanted to comment on the fact that it must be fascinating to sort of have been in since day one and to 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 be in before things like an inconvenient truth came out and to really see the the market grow and, and dwindle and now grow again. There's just it's a really interesting time in the world of energy. And I think uh, you guys are doing some really amazing work around providing that choice because I think that's something that we lack so often. Uh, there are there aren't enough opportunities for people to just make the right decision and to just mm-hmm. vote with their wallets. And so I think it's a very simple and elegant solution that you guys have offered where people literally, they don't have to change any of their behaviors other than to make the choice that they it's something that is valuable to them and that they will put their money where their mouth is. That's exactly right, Sean. And and. You know, I mean, the other thing that's been fantastic to see just within the bullfrog-powered community is the the amazing impact that that community has had. I mean, I remember back in June 2005 before we launched, you know, um, going to visit, um, you know, the first turbine that we were going to be uh, sourcing from. And now today, you know, there are, um, you know, dozens of uh, projects uh, across the country um, that um, you know, Bullfrog has partnered with to help um, get them commissioned, help get them um, built, help to uh, to get them expanded, um, and and projects that you know rely on the the, the choice that Canadians are are making um, in favor of renewables to to be able to to grow and expand and so forth. So, you know, we've got. Uh, you know, solar projects. We've got wind projects. We've got low impact hydro projects all across the country that are that are doing well because um, Canadian students, Canadian homes, um, and businesses are are making this great choice. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to tie this conversation a little bit into some of the work that Student Energy has been doing with um, the United Nations. Uh, In June, uh, the UN launched the Decade of Sustainable Energy for All with three really specific objectives. Uh, The first being universal access to energy, the second being doubling the share of renewables on the global grid, and the third being doubling the rate of energy efficiency. And so I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's something that you guys are really working in that space of how do we double or triple or quadruple the share of renewables as part of the global energy grid because it makes it very easy for people to do. And, and I think that's a theme we've heard time and time again is how do you make it easy for people to do the right thing? Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, you know, it uh, it's interesting because it really takes all sort of, you know, all parts of society for a movement to really um, get traction and, and move forward. And and you know, from our standpoint, as a you know a social enterprise, i.e., a, a business, um, you know that uh, is contributing from a you know market standpoint by um, uh, creating the ability for um, for Canadians to, as I say, vote with their wallet um, in favor of renewables. We see ourselves as kind of one piece of you know a, a bigger uh, puzzle. But being able to leverage the, um, the incredible power of consumer choice to bring about really positive change in society, 
um, you know, we all as consumers make purchasing decisions every day, and 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 we can make those purchasing decisions count when we make them through a values-based lens. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to touch on your comment where you said it takes all sectors of society to mm-hmm. specifically touch on your student program. So mm-hmm. uh, you, I know you guys have just launched this this student initiative to to get more students and, and university students to to make the choice to have their their electricity and their power come from a greener source. And and I wanted to sort of ask two questions there because on one hand there's the um, the sort of influencer benefits and there's the social media benefits and there's the exposure benefits of really rallying that community, but it's also a community that historically has less financial capacity to to make these sorts of decisions. So can you maybe walk us through uh, why you think the student population is important and how you can really uh, inspire that student population to to participate and become partners with Bullfrog Power? Yeah, great, great question. And, um, you know, students are amazing, amazing people. Um, you know, they're at, they're, they're at the beginning of their adult lives and they're really thinking about who am I and what am I doing here on this planet and, and, and what am I going to make of, you know, the time that I have here. And, I mean, they have a, you know, a, a long-standing celebrated tradition of being really the, the agents of, um, powerful social change because they're not afraid to speak out. They're not afraid to, you know, um, you know, get on the streets and walk and protest and, and, and make noise and, and make change. And, um, you know, our, because our, our product, you know, had been configured previously, you know, primarily for sort of, um, homeowners and, and businesses, we, you know, we, we felt we, we were not giving them the opportunity to be a part of this incredibly, um, you know, powerful uh, movement that um, you know that our community is building, and and there's such a there's such a powerful voice and such an important voice um, that um, you know we owe it to them to provide them with um, as many options as we can to to bring about the change that they want to they want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the things that's important that you guys are working on, uh, I heard a, a great quote from, from one of my mentors when I was in university, Mike House, who runs the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation now. And he talked about the muscle memory of donations and how um, as someone who he works on six-figure, seven-figure contributions around a really important sort of healthcare cause, but he talked about the fact that you can't ignore that getting somebody involved, even if it's for $5 or $20 or $50, builds that muscle memory and that behavioral expectation that it's something that they do for the rest of their lives. So uh, I just want to commend you guys that I think it's important to focus. Obviously, we're very biased towards focusing on students as a general population, but I think that it's something that's very key to to encourage people that, you know what, it might not be them putting $5,000 a year or putting new solar panels on their house, but even $50 for a semester worth of clean energy is something that builds that behavioral expectation in yourself. Um, so I just want to commend you guys for really focusing on that market. Well, well, thanks. I mean, but, you know, and, and that's, and I appreciate that, but I, but I also, I think, you know, we, we're grateful to, to, to students, you know, in the sense that, um, we, we recognize that especially this, you know, this generation, you know, they're inheriting a lot of the problems that, you know, frankly, my generation are responsible for. And, and there are many, um, young people today are looking at the world, 
uh, through, you know, a really um, more enlightened uh, lens than some of us old fogies like me. And they, you know, they they want to make a difference in the way in which they approach their role as citizens, as consumers, um, and and you know, as voters, and and so on. And they're, I think, in many ways, you know, really. Uh, an exceptionally aware generation that um, that has enormous power to bring about real change. Mm-hmm. We we always uh, use the soundbite that whether the millennial generation is ready for it or not, we will be the generation that has to finally tackle climate change. Uh, yes. If we're setting a yeah. 2050 emissions target as a global society, and you do the math, yes. it's people in their 20s and 30s that basically have to meet some of these global targets. Uh, and right. I think that's a really... Uh, it's a really exciting time to, to be it in is. this space. Because, it, is ex- yeah. it is very exciting. Yeah. It really is. Well, yeah. well that, that brings uh, to a close the, the questions I'd had for you. Just the, the final question I would have is just for people that are interested in learning more about Bullfrog Power or for students that are interested in exploring this as, a, as an opportunity for themselves, uh, where should people go to find out more? Oh, um, yeah. So um, our website is the, the, the best place to start at bullfrogpower.com. And uh, if you're interested in student life in particular, bullfrogpower.com slash student life. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, Josephine, for coming on the show today. And and we hope to have you on a a future show to hear how the student program has been going and and to get you involved in some more student energy programs. Sounds fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today, Sean. Cheers. close off this month's episode of Energy Voices, we've got Janice Tran, student energy co-founder and one of my favorite people in the entire world, who's going to bring to bear her intense knowledge of the world of green finance. One of the biggest barriers to adoption of a more renewable, more sustainable energy system has been access to capital. And there's some really interesting and fascinating things that are taking place in the world of green energy and green finance. And Janice is going to produce an essay for us to give us a bit of depth and a look into the world of capital in energy. Ones have been monumental for the green finance world. It's possible that the markets are finally catching on to the potential of renewable energy and sustainability. There are three trends that I want to bring your attention to. Green bonds, solar securitization, and socially responsible investing. The fir- this first segment will focus on green bonds. Bonds are a type of mainstream financial instrument where a loan is issued over a fixed period of time with regular interest payments. In plain vanilla language, a bond is basically a large-scale IOU from one party to the other with interest payments. A green bond is a subset of this financial instrument in which the funds of the bond are exclusively applied towards financing new and existing projects that promote climate or other environmental sustainability purposes. In the past year, green bonds have been issued to finance everything from wind farms to electric vehicles. So why are bonds good for renewable energy? First, the nature of a bond structure is better suited for renewable energy and sustainability projects than other types of financial instruments. The time horizons uh, of bonds are long-term, like 10 to 15 years, and therefore align well with the renewable energy or sustainability projects, which tend to be capital-intensive with longer payback periods. Bond investors typically want steady returns over a long time, so contrast these 
uh, bond investors, to say venture capital investors, who generally want quick returns in the one to five year time horizons. Another important reason is the relatively larger and more diverse sea of funders available. According to Goldman Sachs, in 2012, the world saw 7.1 trillion in debt issuance, which is what bonds are classified under, versus only 279 billion in the equity or stock markets. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, between January and June of this year, a record 20 billion in green bonds have been issued. The market is growing fast. At its current pace, total volumes in 2014 will surpass 40 billion by the end of the year, which is triple 2013's volume. The Climate Bond Initiative estimates that the green bonds will continue to grow to 100 billion in 2015. So to put those numbers into context, this year's green bonds will be two to three times more than what German taxpayers will spend subsidizing wind and solar energy, the largest green subsidies in Europe. These green bonds are driven by large part uh, by development banks, municipalities, and now, more interestingly, corporations. So let's take a look at each one in more detail. The concept of the green bond was originally created by the World Bank in 2008 to help bring private capital to climate change related investments. Since its inception, the World Bank has raised over $6.4 billion in green bonds. Until last year, most of the green bond deals were executed by development banks and international non-governmental organizations. Lately, these organizations are pushing the boundaries, literally, of green bond issuances, catching more private interest attention in new global markets than has been seen previously. For example, on August 14th, the IFC issued the first green bond in the Peruvian markets, with over $15 million going toward towards supporting green investments in the country. The second type of green bond, the corporate green bond, functions similarly to those bonds issued by develop development banks in that the funds are allocated exclusively to fund green initiatives, but the repayments are for from general corporate funds of for-profit companies. One example of a corporate green bond was Toyota's $1.75 billion offering for electric vehicles. Proceeds of the bond will fund new retail finance contracts and lease contracts for qualified Toyota and Lexus hybrid or electric vehicles. Since the bonds are backed by Toyota, the bond is considered low risk in the marketplace, so it's no surprise it was oversold and the company actually issued more than it planned, by $50 billion in fact. Another noteworthy corporate green bond was a $1 billion issue by Berkshire Hathaway Energy for the 580-megawatt Solar Star PV project. The surprising growth in green bonds are in large part due to corporate issuers. The value of green corporate bonds grew about tenfold between 2013 and 2014, whereas bonds issued by development banks remained relatively the same. However, issues, issuers have not been able to realize pricing advantages through green labeling as investors are unwilling to take lower than expected return uh, rates simply for the ability to go green. So why would an investor invest in a green bond? Well, there are many investors that are looking to do well but also do good, and this instrument is perfect because it is low risk and accessible. A company is then able to attract a more diverse pool of funders with this branding tactic. Finally, municipalities are also following the trend in green bonds by offering tax-exempt bonds specifically marked for environmental infrastructure projects. In May 2013, Massachusetts USA issued the first labeled green bond by a municipality at $100 million. The Swedish city of Gothenburg followed with a 70, 79, bond, uh, $79 million bond. Just recently, in June 2014, New York State issued a $213 million green bond to finance 128 wastewater projects. The growth in the green bond movement strongly suggests that we are approaching acceptance of this new asset class, paving the way for more funding and a cheaper financing option for green initiatives. 
However, as with anything new, we need to make sure that the infrastructure and controls are in place to ensure safe and sustained growth. Right now, green bonds offer no confidence or means of enforcing environmental compliance. The last thing we need is a big controversy to topple the progress that has taken so many years to build momentum. As Forbes wrote in June, it is important that we begin to shift gears and move from proving the model to actually creating the market infrastructure that incorporates meaningful standards to support a wider and more liquid market for green bonds. And I agree with this statement. To use a very quote-unquote green analogy, right now the green bond market is just sprouting and we, are, and we want to create the right conditions for the market to blossom rather than wilt away. The green bond principles developed in January 2013 tries to address the issue of governance by developing a set of standards universally agreed upon by green bond parties. These green bond principles were initially drafted by major financial institutions like Bank of America Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan Chase, and 49 institutions have since signed the principles. These voluntary guidelines encourage transparency and integrity, protecting against greenwashing, which corporations particularly run the risk of being accused of. Finally, even though the green bond market has grown surprisingly fast, it still has a long way to go. Green, bond, green bonds only constitute a small fraction of the broader bond market. Global green bond issuance in 2013 was about 1% of the value of U.S. corporate bond issuance. But all is not lost. The popularity of these mainstream financial instruments finally coming into renewable energy and sustainability projects is greatly needed. Mainstream financing is the only way the green industry will grow. And here's to hoping that the rest of 2014 will continue surprising the finance world with its resilience and creative thinking. Tune in next time for the second part of my series on green finance, where I'll talk about the trends in solar securitization. Thank you for listening. That brings us to a close of another episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair with contributions from Janice Tran. To listen to previous episodes of Energy Voices, please visit bit.ly slash energyvoices or at cgsw.com. We encourage you to share your thoughts and to comment using hashtag energyvoices on social media platforms.